It's a great delight this morning to have another baptismal service. Don't ever forget that a biblical baptism, a biblically warranted baptism, is an evidence of God's saving grace among us. And it's a delight when the children of our church, who either as children or as they enter into adulthood, um, come to personally trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something we're going to hear about in just a moment from Kennedy Jones. I was just talking to mom and dad, or mom particularly, and I think it's been pretty close to eight years that I've been privileged to be one of her pastors. And there are many, many things that God has used to bring uh, Kennedy to the Lord Jesus, starting, of course, with her parents and the home and the church and Sunday school teachers, and the, the list goes on and on. God has been preparing her for many years to to flee to Jesus, which she has done recently and settled that whole issue. We're going to hear about it, and I'm excited. But we do need to receive her into the membership of this church by way of vote, and the, the pastors, the elders, are nominating her to be a member, and I need someone, a member of the church, to second that nomination. It comes from Dad. That's not allowed. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, who better to, to uh, vote for the... A daughter than a father. Uh, so, all members of the church who are in favor of Kennedy being received into the membership of the church, please indicate by saying aye. aye. Any members opposed, indicate by saying nay. There is no opposition, and we're not surprised. So, uh, Kennedy, would you come and share your testimony here uh, with us for a few moments? And then Pastor Keith and I will be privileged to baptize you. This is not the first time I've been baptized. I was eight the first time in a church in Illinois. Growing up in a Christian home, I knew all the right answers, and I probably was convinced that I was saved. Getting baptized was the thing. I wanted to be part of the club. But after the baptism, I gave no more thought to anything spiritual. I could do what I wanted. I totally forgot the Bible, except for Sundays. Looking back, I don't even remember caring at all, really. It wasn't until about seven years later that I started thinking again. From about the time I was 15 up until recently, I felt God prodding and poking at me off and on. Questions would enter my head. When are you at least going to dust that Bible off? Or when are you going to start talking to God? I would always shove the questions away and think, later, I'm in the middle of something. But I was always in the middle of something, even if it was staring at the ceiling. And I always thought there would be a later. God would soon show me that this was not the case. When Dad decided to go to Birmingham Hospital in Alabama, I begged to go with him. On the way there with the Earlies, we passed a semi on the highway, and on the back was scrawled two words, Trust Jesus. And suddenly something seemed to click into place in my mind. God was doing all this for a reason. I've heard that millions of times over, but it really made sense now. We arrived mid-afternoon. As some people have testified, stepping into the waiting room was like stepping into a different world. To me, it felt closed off, separated from the rest of the world. But what I noticed more than anything else were the gollies. 
Even though there were tears, there were also smiles, even laughter. I was puzzled at first. How could anything else come into their minds? I was utterly flabbergasted. But it was because they knew this was not the end. I saw that even in Sean's room, there were still smiles. Towards the end, they were ready to let him go. They did not act as those who had no hope, because they knew where he would go. And I beheld their joy in the midst of sorrows. Then I thought about the non-believers. What hope did they have of seeing their loved ones again? And I thought, what if this happened to me? Would my parents have the same assurance of where I was going? I couldn't bear to put them in that kind of torment. God was showing me that I cannot keep pushing him off. He showed me that any breath could be my last. My time is so limited. I have seen my need for God, and I have a love for him that I haven't known before. We said goodbye to the Gollies Monday night, and we left with Mr. Hoke. It was in the back of Mr. Hoke's truck that I had time to sit and think, without anxiety and worry clouding my head. I thought back on everything I had witnessed and everything I learned. So many things had clicked and brought lights to my mind. I wouldn't wait a moment longer. Jesus has pursued me long enough. He wouldn't have to throw things at me anymore to get my attention. He had it. I finally saw my foolishness in rejecting something so vital for so long. I asked him to melt my heart of stone. Then I threw all my sins and cares and sorrows on him. My hope is now in Christ, who took away my sins with his death on the cross. I want what the Gollies had in their time of trouble. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 When Sean's condition was looking desperate toward the end, I thought this would be like those stories I love reading, where the most desperate times are just the dark before the dawn. It looks bad, but then everything gets better. But the dawn never came. I watched, feeling helpless, in the last hour as the time ticked by, and the dawn never came. But then I realized the dawn wouldn't be how I expected it to be, or how we all hoped it would be. It it will be brighter and more beautiful than we can ever imagine. God will bring something out of this. That will be so big, we won't even see all of it this side of heaven. We will probably only see a tiny fraction of the dawn of what God is doing. And I know that I'm a part of that fraction. One of God's reasons was me. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense against anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter 3.15 Sean may have died that day, but through God's plan... I and many others may live. Amen. Amen. Hey, Mike and Rich, would you guys just move this lid and just set it right over here, please? Thank you. I just want to ask you a few questions, my little sister. (laughs) Is Christ your only hope 
exclusive of any works or any good deeds that you have ever done, is he your only hope? Are, are you ready from this time forward? Not that you haven't already started to do this, because you have. But, but are you ready to walk in newness of life that would be demonstrated by your obedience and your pursuit of holiness after Christ's example? One last question then. As a part of our family then, that you, that you have become, are you ready to be accountable and also encouraged by all your brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, I've got to do this. It'll, it'll drip. <laughs> okay. Based upon uh, Kennedy's public declaration of her attachment uh, for Christ and her sole dependence upon him for salvation, I baptize her in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son of God, in the name of the Holy Spirit which indwells her. Hallelujah. Well, it's my privilege to lead us in a pastoral prayer after that. So thankful for God's grace. And I was sharing with uh, Brother Dave Owens this morning that uh, Kennedy's testimony is kind of what I'm, you know, calling the first fruits of Sean's life and death. And uh, we're praying for a lot more um, to be ushered in through the following weeks and months. So let's pause and praise God and thank him um, for all that he's done. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you that you did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that you actually had the power on earth to forgive sin. You have the power to forgive sin. We praise you for that. We bless you that you came to save your people from their sins. And that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you that you are, to your honor and not to your shame, a friend of sinners. That you have always been a friend of sinners. We would, none of us would be seated here this morning if that were not true. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the gracious invitation that you have given to those who are weary and burdened to come to you for rest. And for the assurance that whoever comes to you, that you will in no way cast out. We thank you that you have showed your love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love. This is love. Not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to satisfy your wrath against our sins. 
and not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Lord, you tasted death for every man so that through death you might destroy the one who had the power of death, the devil. And we thank you that you have destroyed his power. We bless you that by one offering you have perfected for all time those who are sanctified and have made an end of sin and have reconciled us to yourself through an everlasting righteousness. And that you have redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And that you were wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And that you have loved us and you, has, and you have washed us from our sins. And that you have made us unto God as kings and priests. We are so blessed. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And so we pray to that end that this would be the very beginning of a great saving work in the midst of Heritage Baptist Church. That you will begin this great, amazing work of God that we could not uh, imagine. Even as it, as it says in Habakkuk, I will do a work in your days that you would not believe even if it were told to you. Lord, that you would do something that great, that grand, that phenomenal, that you would move in power through your spirit and that through this body, Lord, that all of those who do not know Jesus Christ would come to a saving relationship with him and that you would spark a revival, that you would spark a, uh, a, a renewed zeal and passion for Jesus Christ and that through that, Lord, that people will be given their lives away and that this city itself, Owensboro and Davis County, would be impacted by the gospel that has come through Sean's life and death, Lord. Even as Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will bear no fruit. And we pray that in principle, that Sean's life that has been sown, his death, his life that has been sown, that it would reap a great fruit. We thank you for saving Kennedy Jones. Thank you for your grace in her life. And Lord, we pray that you would extend that grace to the rest of the Jones family. That everyone, every last member of their family would know Jesus Christ. And, and that you would do that and just spread that out among our church family. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, for this demonstration. This powerful demonstration of the gospel this morning. And uh, Lord, we pray now as we continue this service that there would be a, a, a marked anointing of your spirit upon this service. That the Holy Spirit, that you would, sweet spirit, sovereignly come and just dwell with us. We just invite you here. We invite your presence and your powerful ministry among us. We are helpless in and of ourselves to do anything good, Lord. But Pastor Mark is going to come in a few minutes and he is going to preach. And we pray that your word would be powerful. And, and the word that we've already seen in demonstration through baptism would, 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 would resonate with people. So Lord, come. And we want, we're, we're here for you. This is why we're here. Gathered to worship your name. So be pleased. Thank you also for the tithes and offerings that we have given. Lord, we pray that these things would be given for the sake of your name and for your glory. We, we realize and recognize this principle. We own nothing. It's not ours. Anything that we have in our pocket is from you. And so we want to invest it back in your kingdom. What better thing can we do than to serve your kingdom and extend it for the sake of your glory? So, Lord, bless that. Help us to be selfless. Now, Lord, we honor you. We praise you as our sovereign, 
And we ask that you would be pleased and that you would come with power now. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes is where we're going to be again this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So if you have a Bible or have it on your phone or have it all memorized, you're welcome to uh, join us there. We're making our way through this book of the Bible. And uh, we'll be wrapping it up hopefully at the end of March. But we're closing in on on the final chapters here. I'm going to go ahead and read for us the verses that I'll be preaching from this morning, verses 11 through 18. This is God's word. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is God's word. Well, here's one fact of life. Here's one certainty of life. There are very few certainties in life. One certainty of life is there is very few or there are very few certainties in life. In the mid-90s, a singer by the name of Alanis Morissette released a song called Ironic. In it, she says, an old man turned 98. He won the lottery and died the next day. It's a black fly in your Chardonnay. It's a death row pardon, two minutes too late. A traffic jam when you're already late. A no smoking sign on your cigarette break. It's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. It's meeting the man of my dreams and then meeting his beautiful wife. In that song, Alanis captures the idea of irony and uncertainty and unpredictability in life. And it, in fact, illustrates the very text that we're going to be looking at this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. The truth is we can do everything right and have things turn out completely wrong. And some can do everything wrong and have things turn out right as far as this world is concerned. Last week, Pastor Jonathan brought us through verse 10 of chapter 9. And in verses 7 through 10, we were encouraged to enjoy life. We were encouraged to have a good meal, throw a party, celebrate, enjoy our marriage, enjoy our work, 
So how'd that go this week? Anybody frustrated this week? Anybody encounter uncertainties and unpredictabilities this week? Anybody set out to obey that passage and found yourself frustrated in the process? That's why Solomon wrote chapter 9 verses 11 through 18. To remind us that even in the midst of our pursuit of celebration and joy, this world is still a frustrating place to live. There are no pat answers in the Christian life, are there? We need the continual reminder that faith is knowing God is in control and he knows best. God has said he will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And just because we can't understand all the answers doesn't mean we give up on the one who knows them all. I mean, we feel so small and ignorant when complexities come. We ask, why? I don't understand, Lord. And in those moments, it's, when, it's then we realize that real Christian maturity is not having all the answers. It's trusting God in the midst of a lot of questions. Sometimes a satisfying answer never comes and never will come in this life. And as we humbly walk with the Lord and trust, we accept by faith that some things are just not going to be permitted for us to understand. And we're okay with that. Oswald Chambers said, quote, God disciplines us by disappointments. Life may have been going on like a torrent. Then suddenly down comes a barrier of disappointment until slowly we learn that the disappointment was by his appointment. I want to talk about frustration this morning. I think that's the theme of Ecclesiastes 9, 11 through 18. And I want to look at this under four headings. The first one I want to talk about is the reason for frustration. So I want to step back from this passage immediately and just talk about why life is frustrating. Why is it that things don't go as planned, that life is unpredictable, that life is uncertain? The Bible gives us the answer. Ecclesiastes gives us the answer. The answer is we live in a fallen world with fallen people. Look back one chapter or two, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Solomon reminds us, he says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. We've already considered these verses, so I'm not going to talk about them in great detail. But I will remind us that this world is the way it is because God made it that way. Not originally that way, but as a result of human sin, there has been a crookedness introduced into this world. It's a crookedness that includes days of prosperity and days of adversity. And God in his sovereignty has made the one as well as the other. We live in a frustrated cosmos. There will be all kinds of frustration that we will face because this is a fallen world. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Where sin comes into the world through Adam. And as a result, not only is his relationship with God affected. But his relationship with humanity is affected. And his relationship with the world is affected. Because it's not just mankind that's cursed. It's the earth 
if you remember. And Romans 8 reminds us of that reality too. That the earth was subjected to futility by him who subjected it, namely God. And that therefore the, the earth has a heaving, groaning quality to it. And we share in that groaning. The brokenness of creation makes things so difficult and complicated in this life. Your schedule doesn't always go according to plan. Sometimes God flat out burns your script for your day. Things get in the way and you have no control over them. They disrupt your peace and your comfort. And it reminds us that this world is fractured. But also we live in the midst of a of fallen people. It's not just a fallen world and a fallen cosmos that we live in, but it's fallen people. It's people that are affected by that curse. Again, Ecclesiastes reminds us of this in chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There's that concept of sin introduced. Verse 29, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. There's the fall. There's Adam and Eve's departure from God. And as a result, sin has been introduced into this world. That's reminded again and again in Ecclesiastes. I won't turn us there, but chapter 9, verse 3, chapter 8, verse 12, chapter 9, verse 18, all reference this reality of sin in the world and sin directly related to people. I know this is a really shocking reality, but we're not perfect. All of us carry around a deep problem inside of us, and it's called sin. And it does something terrible. It makes us want to live in the claustrophobic confines of our own self-defined worlds. Sin causes us to want to live for nothing bigger than our own wants, our own desires, our own self-defined needs. It causes us to want to live in the center of the universe. And while we as people are the world's biggest problem, it needs to be said that we're not the only sinner in the universe either. The people we live with and work with are deeply troubled by sin as well. And when you get a world full of sinners living for themselves, something bad's going to happen. So the sin of the human heart causes a variety of troubles and hardships, and Ecclesiastes demonstrates these all over the place. Ecclesiastes demonstrates that because this world has fallen, work is going to be hard and distressing. Chapter 1, verse 3. Nothing will be new. Everything will be vain. Labor will be hateful because someone else will get the fruit of it. Church and state are corrupt. Men are oppressed. The unborn are at a distinct advantage because they don't have to live through this conveyor belt of tears. Popularity is in constant flux. The wealth of the The wealthy are unable to enjoy their wealth and they, in fact, destroy themselves with their own riches. Men rule others and then destroy themselves as a result. Good and evil men live alongside each other and they both die at the end. Our emotions perish with us and time and chance happen to us all. And I didn't quote the verses. Those are verses. I just didn't feel like I needed to tack on a nine verse three after every one of those. But I just quoted Ecclesiastes at various levels. Those are the sorts of things that are demonstrated in this book as being a product of the curse of the fall of sin and its presence in the world. So that's my first point. That's the reason for frustration. And Ecclesiastes makes no bones about that. That's the reason that we live in the, in the, in the world that we live in. Secondly, the reality of frustration. What does it look like? 
What does it look like? Well, I gave you some examples, but what does it look like here in this passage? And here's where we're going to dive in immediately to the text here. This whole passage up through chapter 9, 11, verses all the way up through verse 15 is an illustration of frustration. It starts off by Solomon saying, again, coming back to a theme he's already repeated. This is not new for us as we've journeyed through Ecclesiastes. We've seen this come up again and again. It says, again, I saw that under the sun that is in this world, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. So he gives five examples of people we think would be winners who end up being losers. That's frustrating. He starts off by saying the race is not to the swift. Now, many of us watch the opening ceremonies at Sochi. We know the Winter Olympics are going on. And just to let you in, I'm going to predict a few things. I'm going to predict that some people who were expected to win won't win. And some people who were completely unexpected to win, they're going to win. And they're going to stand there on that podium with a gold medal around their neck saying, I don't know how in the world this happened. And there's going to be somebody kicking something in the back and throwing out all kinds of bad words because they didn't get it. The race is not to the swift, Solomon says. Just because you may be the fastest runner doesn't mean you're always going to win the race. He also says, nor is the battle always to the strong. We would think that the person with the greatest military strength is going to win the war. But that's no guarantee. If you have a thousand soldiers and your enemy only has a hundred, it doesn't mean that you're going to win, Solomon says. Sometimes it goes the other way, as we'll see in a moment. He also says, nor does bread go to the wise. We typically think that if a person is very wise about their life, that they'll make a good living and that they'll be able to afford food. He said there's lots of really smart poor people that can't eat. The bread doesn't always go to the wise. Often wisdom is not recognized or appreciated or thieves take advantage of things and we lose. He says also, nor do riches come to the intelligent. There are many, as I just said, brilliant people who are living in poverty because they never got an opportunity to use their brilliant minds. Ask a brilliant art history major if that is true, and he'll likely respond, "Uh, would you like fries with that? Which, side note, get a marketable degree, okay? Just saying. Nor does favor always come to the learned or or come to those with knowledge, he says. One may think that nice guys who do things in a good way will always be favored. But Solomon says, this is not always the case. So he gives five little examples of things we would expect to turn out a certain way, which end up in frustration. They happen the opposite way. And then in verse verse 11, he explains why. He says, time and chance happen to them all. Now, he's not using chance to describe fate or saying, you know, just fate happens. He's made abundantly clear. I don't have to prove that God is sovereign in this book, right? That God controls everything. We saw some verses already. 
But what he means by time and chance is that the outcome of events, the way things unfold in this life, happens to people indiscriminately of who they are. He's already made the point that death comes to all. That was one of the points of last week's sermon. And human, inab- human ability does not guarantee success on any level. We like to think we can control outcomes. We like to think that if we just work hard enough, strategize long enough, plan well enough, consider all the options and opt for the best, that things will turn out well, that it won't backfire. But our pursuit may very well go right down the toilet and may result in a heap of frustration. Sometimes nice guys finish last. He says in verse 12, for man does not know his life like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time. It can happen suddenly, decisively, and have no logical explanation whatsoever. And it just happens. It happens according to God's plan, but nevertheless, it happens. And it falls upon us. He uses the language of snare, being caught in a net being snared at an evil time, suddenly it falling. It's picturing a catastrophic event, something unexpected overwhelms us. It's the reality of frustration. And now he gives a very specific example in verses 13 to 15. Solomon begins to tell one of his favorite stories, and it's the ultimate story. It's a great story. It's a story we all love. It's the underdog story. Don't you love underdog stories? I mean, I love the underdog stories. We all love it. It's every movie is an underdog story at some level. Forrest Gump's an underdog underdog story, right? Remember the Titans, Rudy, Rocky. Any sports movie is an underdog story, seems. But you've got all these popular underdog stories. There's, there's There's big opposition, right? We all know the story. Some insurmountable event, obstacle stands in the way of someone. And they come up against it, they challenge it, and they overcome when they weren't expected to overcome. And that's the story that Solomon's getting ready to share with us. This goes back to the ancient time. I mean, this this story, this story of the underdog has captured the imagination of humanity forever. We're We're not new to this. And here's his example. He says in verse 13, I have seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. The underdog. Here we go. Little city, few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Something's going to happen. Great king, big army, little city, little people. What's going to happen? It's Helm's Deep, Lord of the Rings, folks. Helm's Deep. Here we go. But there was found in it a poor wise man and he by his wisdom delivered the city what a day wouldn't you like to be that dude here he is he strolls up he offers wisdom a strategy a way to overcome the obstacle they listen to him and by it they overcome the city The poor wise man, the guy that no one thought could contribute anything, ends up saving the day for the whole city. And what happens to that dude? Verse 15, no one remembered that poor man. Is that frustrating? 
Is that frustrating? You better believe it's frustrating. We know this. We know this on different levels. We have not been the poor man in the city, protecting the city from the great king. But we know what it's like to not be thanked for something. To expend energy, wisdom, give time, give effort towards something. And somebody just snap it up and take it for granted. That's what's happening to the poor man. You would, the poor man might have thought, I'm going to get promoted out of poverty. Now they've seen my wisdom. I'm going to get to be on the court. And I'll be able to judge over this city and rule over this city. And he had all these expectations and hopes and dreams. And the next day comes and they don't even think about the guy. They just take advantage of him. Not a thank you, not a promotion, nothing. Which sort of reveals to us where our frustrations come from, don't they? Frustration comes from unmet expectations. And if you have a view of this life that is over opt- overly optimistic, you will be perpetually frustrated. If you have expectations of people or expectations of how circumstances are going to turn out based upon certain actions that you have, welcome to frustration. And we all have it and we all battle it to various degrees, but it's because we forget that we live in a fallen world with fallen people. And so sometimes in the church, we let our frustrations eat us alive. And sometimes in our families, in our marriages, we let our frustration eat us alive because we have this optimistic view of life that is almost post-resurrection glory, new heavens and new earth right here and now. No struggle, no frustration, no disappointment. No, we're going to have that. And also if we've caved into cynicism and say, well, everybody's going to take advantage of me. X-Files, trust no one. You know, then... That's not any better. Now you're just a perpetually frustrated person that no one wants to be around anyway. So cynicism and overly optimism are not the solution. What's the solution? Next point. Response to frustration. Let's talk about how we should respond to it. Now there's a couple ways that this passage illustrates how we can respond to frustration in verse 16 through 18. Here's how Solomon kind of copes with all of this. He says in verse 16, but I say, he starts talking to himself now. He sees this, the race is not to the swift, battle's not to the strong. Here's this poor man, no, everybody forgot about him. What do we think about this? He says, I'm going to say something to myself. I'm going to say this. Wisdom is better than might, though a poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So he says, even if this situation happens the way it happens, goes down the way it goes down. At the end of the day, still better to be wise than to be strong. He keeps going. Why? Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So he's demonstrating wisdom versus strength here. Think about it. We'll, we'll get back to this in a second. Wisdom versus strength. Verses 18, again, verse 18, again, contrast between wisdom and strength. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now he's being realistic about life. He's not saying wisdom. If you're a wise person, you're going to be able to achieve some sort of, you know, rosy life in this, in this life. If you just know enough stuff and you're able to, we've demonstrated that again and again in Ecclesiastes. The more, you know, the more you're frustrated sometimes. 
But what he's saying here is that it's still better to be wise, even in the midst of all the frustration, even in the midst of all the difficulty, it's better to be wise and humble and submissive and sweet and quiet than it is to take up arms and fight against it. Which is the ways that we can respond to frustration, right? So, for instance, we could respond to frustration by strength, which is what he's not encouraging us to respond to frustration with. Strength being a metaphor for what we can do in our own power to fix the situation. And he uses two illustrations. One is shouting and second is weapons of war. Now, how many of you all or have been this person trying to fix frustration by what you can say really loudly and what you can accomplish with threats and firepower, even if it's not a literal gun, right? But you have this, you have this, this overwhelming, you know, I'm going to shout about it. I'm going to yell about it till it gets fixed. I'm frustrated. People need to know it. And I'm going to take up some weapons and I'm going to do some stuff and I'm going to rearrange some circumstances and I'm going to try to fix this because it's wrong. I'm the center of the universe. My sovereignty is being violated. God has told me no. I'm going to tell him yes. And this can look a lot of different shades. It doesn't always have to look violent. Let me give you four shades of shouting in war. Okay? First, rose-colored glasses optimism. Look at life, big dreams, big expectations, ignoring the real possibility of great tragedy. That's not what that's not wise. Or pessimism. Life is gloomy. Life is humorous. I'm convinced that something bad is going to happen and it's probably going to happen to me tomorrow. So I'm going to scowl. I'm going to complain. I'm going to scoff at any attempt to turn things around. So optimists, optimists lack reality. Pessimists lack joy. But then there's the suspicion, right? Suspicious people distrust everyone, especially God. They think that everyone's out to get them and the world is full of cheaters, liars, crooks, and perverts. Such people are often lonely, alienate others, and have a difficult time accepting an act of grace or love from God or other people because suspicious people lack trust. So that's one way to respond to it, just to be overly suspicious. And then the final way is just to be fatalistic. Why try to fix it? Our existence is pointless and futile. Let's just get along. So that's all unwise, stupid, foolish behavior. And what Solomon is calling us to is to wisdom. And notice how he describes wisdom. He says, wisdom is good. No, wisdom is not concerned with circumstances. Let me put it that way. You notice how he says that in verse 16. Wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So why do this? Nothing's going to change. That's not wisdom. That's not wisdom. Wisdom says I'm going to do this because it's right. It's wise. I don't know how things are going to turn out. I don't have to know, but I know it's wise because the Bible gives me wisdom, tells me how to live, tells me how to respond to these situations. That's 
You're getting, we're getting wisdom now from this text about how to respond to frustration. And he's saying, you, you are to be wise about it. You're, you're, not to, you're not to see it as, well, that's not going to affect anything, so I'm not going to do that. That's not wise. Another thing is, it says, the, verse 17, the words of the wise. So words are important here. Information. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So there's the way we get wisdom is to be quiet, to be listening, to have a posture of humility, to have a posture of reception, to have a learning posture, to have an open posture, especially toward God and his wisdom. And then he says, wisdom is better than the weapons of war, even though one sinner or but one sinner can destroy much good. Drawing back to verse 16, though the poor man's wisdom is is despised and his words are not heeded. So the response to frustration is very important. We need to have a response that is humble, that is a, a disposition to listen and learn, rather than a disposition to fight and shout. It doesn't mean that we don't work to alleviate circumstantial frustration and we don't try to fix things that are broken. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying be a doormat. Okay, don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying, though, is don't take up guns, either literally or figuratively, and don't make it your goal to outshout people as though that's going to fix frustration. It's not. It's not. So what is the proper response then? Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 tell us, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. See what he's doing? He's saying don't focus on your wisdom, your might, your riches the things we think that can deliver us from frustrating circumstances. He says, focus then on the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. So we have a God here who's at work in the earth, working steadfast love, justice, and righteousness for in these things he delights. So do you know them? Do you know him, the Lord who practices in the earth? Because if that is your fundamental belief and conviction, that God is and that God is at work in the midst of this fallen world for good and gracious purposes toward his people, you'll handle frustration better. You just will. You will. You'll respond to it better. You won't respond with shouting and weapons of war and a fist in God's face. You'll be humble in your posture and you'll be willing to learn and listen. So that's the response to frustration. But I don't want to end there. We've seen the reality, or we've seen, we've seen the reality first, the reason second, or the reason first, the reality second, and then the response, and now I want to talk about the Redeemer. Because we don't, we, we're a Christian church. We don't end with rules. And we don't end with, without a glimpse of Jesus. Because he's here. He's in the passage. Where is he? Do we know a poor, wise man who came to accomplish deliverance? 
Do you see that? There was found in it a poor wise man, and by his wisdom delivered the city. This is not a direct allusion to Jesus, but it is an allusion. Jesus came into this frustrated world and got absolutely nothing that he deserved. The race didn't go to the swift. The battle didn't go to the strong. He was the wisest man who ever lived and his wisdom has been despised and his word is not heard. Remember John chapter one, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Truth and light shows up. Men love darkness rather than light and reject the truth and light. Jesus came into the world, not with shouting or weapons of war. And aren't we glad he will come. He's coming with shouting and weapons of war when he comes again with a sword wedded for slaughter. But not now. First time he came, not with shouting and weapons of war, but quietly and humbly. Born in a stable, 30 years in a nothing town. Walking around in villages, preaching on hillsides, hanging out with fishermen, tax collectors, sinners. Homeless, penniless. He wasn't completely penniless. Upsetting the religious establishment. They saw nothing in him, Isaiah 53, that would be attractive. He just looked like a poor wise man. Isn't that Joseph and Mary's son? Aren't his brothers here with us? He's no different. And yet here's the one who came and accomplished deliverance. Here's the one who came and died for us and set us free. To set us free from the grave at the end of an empty life to make us right with God through his work on the cross and to fix this broken world upon his return. And I want to ask you, do you know this poor wise man? Do you know this man or have you forgotten him? Are you despising him and his words are not heard by you? To what do you give most of your attention when it comes to wisdom and how to live life and how to walk in this broken, fractured world? Is it that poor wise man? Or is it Piers Morgan? Or some other person on Fox News or Oprah? Or who, whoever you're looking to to fix your life? And yet here's this poor wise man. Jesus, who has accomplished this great deliverance, and he proved it by rising from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death, and he has become for us wisdom. And he offers himself to us, and he says, take me, for in the language of 1 Corinthians one thirty, take me as your wisdom, your sanctification, and your redemption. Take him for that. And that makes all the difference in whether or not you can eat your bread with joy. You can drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do 
It makes all the difference in your being able to let your garments always be white and not, not let any oil be lacking on your head. It makes all the difference in you being able to enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. It makes all the difference in being able to enjoy life. Here's what Doug Wilson says, and with this I close. For those who fear him, God gives the gift of being able to actually enjoy this big marching band of futility, the tubas of vanity bringing up the rear. He gives to a wise man the gift of watching with a pious and grateful chuckle one damn thing after another. And understand what context I'm using that word in. Cursed. One cursed thing after another. All things considered, the furious activity of this world is about as meaningful as the halftime frenzy of the Super Bowl. And it was quite frenzy, a lot of frenzy. But a wise man can be there and enjoy himself. This is the gift of God. God gives, to say again, to a wise man, the gift of part of watching with a pious and grateful chuckle, one damn thing after another. If we, if, if Jesus is the center of our lives and he is that poor wise man that we know has accomplished a great deliverance, though all around the world, it looks like nothing's happened except a bunch of people have gotten their sins forgiven and are destined for glory. On an inward and an inward level, Jesus is accomplishing amazing things. We just saw it with Kennedy. And if we have him, if we have the redeemer, then we are able to live with the reality of frustration in a way that makes no sense to anyone. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge your sovereign rule over this world. We acknowledge that we in Adam have sinned and brought about the destruction that this world is now in and the curse that it is now under. We thank you that there are glimmers of grace all throughout this world because you have not allowed men by your common grace to pollute it in ways that it could be polluted. But nevertheless, you have been kind to us. But nevertheless, God, at the same time, we live in a greatly frustrated world. We thank you that this is not the end of the story, that we don't live in a tragedy. We live in a comedy, that this will end well for those who fear you. And that's what Ecclesiastes is pointing us toward. Thank you that you gave, you've given us an incredibly optimistic, real book. This is an optimistic book. It's not a pessimistic book. It's a book that sounds a note of joy through the midst of trouble and disillusionment and frustration and difficulty. And we thank you that we know that joy and his name is Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Sing. Please stand with us to sing. With the peace I've come to know
Well, what we've considered today is enough to really bring a lot of change to us, um, life transformation. We've seen a demonstration powerfully of the gospel, and we've heard a rich word. And um, if you're here as a non-Christian, or you're not even sure, you're just wondering, you know, what does it mean to get right with God? Look, we would love to talk with you. So if you'll just find us in the back, a couple of our pastors will be right there as you go out the door. We would love for you to grab us and just say, hey, I want to talk to you about that. I've just got some questions. I want to know more about this. We would love, there's nothing that would make us more happy than to talk with you about that. And uh, if you're new and you're visiting with us, um, welcome. If you're a guest um, in the back, you'll find a little table on your way out. If you have any questions about our church, you're welcome to go back there and talk with uh, Miss Linda, who's back there. She would love to chat with you. And uh, finally, to our people, just a word of benediction. Um, Jesus, it was said of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8 9 that um, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sake, so that through him we might become rich. And rich we are in Christ. Have a great week. God bless you.